Welcome everyone, back for the second talk on the ninth parami in the 2009th no, year of our, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so um, I try to uh, simplify our Buddhism down into something that's very uh, apparent and accessible. Uh, I think that uh, if you read uh, Buddhism from a sense of yourself and what you need to do about yourself, then you'll be forever burdened with the complexity of the sutras and the lists and the tasks and the practices. And you can do that uh, and labor yourself until into old age making uh, improvements it's not that things won't happen things will happen but uh, it may not be the liberating a direction that your heart most wants to go and my direction or one that I'd like to set for myself is a liberating direction <clears throat> not one that allows me to claim a certain a sense of self-fulfillment because that's not exactly the way this whole tradition uh, is moving. So when we take a subject of love or any of the paramis, we need to know that they're really moving towards a single unified uh, perception. And that if we try uh, to do those from a sense of uh, self-improvement, we will be lost in a continuous sense of evaluation and comparison and uh, labor uh, towards becoming more of whatever parami we place in reference to. More patient, more kind, more loving, more moral, more resolved, So I like to tie it all together in something very easy for us to understand. Uh, And to do that, uh, we have to realize how we sit and when we are meditating, what that has to do with the paramis, what that has to do with anything we're doing here, what that has to do with liberation, what that has to do with anything I speak about. Why do we sit? Why do we sit? What's the direction of the sitting? Is it the same direction as the paramis? Is it the same direction as the seven factors of enlightenment, the five spiritual faculties, this on and on? Is it the same? Or are these separate things that I have to do on the side, the sidebar of my life, and trying to get the formula right so that I can pass through the eye of the needle? You see the question? So we're going to make this simple. Now, you may want it complex, I don't. I, I won't be able to serve you very well if that's your need. So when we talk about love or any of the paramis, we're talking about you could say an aspect of stillness or awareness. These are uh, um, saying the same thing. What's the? It's not analogous. It's a assembly. It's what. They're synonyms. They're all synonyms for one another. 
So what, what is it? What, what does that look like? You see, because when we're trying to be quieter in ourselves, how is that a direction? And how is that a direction towards anything? In fact, it feels to me sort of vacuous. And when I say it uh, as a statement of direction, it feels uh, empty to say nothing. It also seems uh, very um, uninspiring. Doesn't it? Being quiet, it's like what your fifth grade teacher told you to do as they wag their finger in your face. But when we sit down, that's what we're trying to do. That's what, that's where our effort goes. It doesn't tor- go towards generating more noise. Because the sense of, when we generate noise, we generate a, a verbal expression for life. That verbal expression invites the world to be seen as in dualistic terms, doesn't it? When you call something by name, you have two of them. You who's calling and that which you're calling by name. When you see through a word, you see two things. You see me and you. You see this and that. So when we sit down, we're not investing in the word. We're investing in the quiet or the space that holds the word. That's what we're doing in meditation. So we're not sitting down and ruminating about our life, trying to sort it out. That is more like self-therapy. We're not trying to figure things out problematically. We're not trying to sort things out. Uh, We're just trying to be quiet with what is happening and occurring within the mind and body. And so... When we do that, we embrace noise, not with more noise, because we're not arguing with ourselves to try to force ourselves to be quiet. We're not struggling with the noise that's there. If we're struggling with the noise that's there, then we're adding a dimension of noise to the noise. And that doesn't get us anywhere. So just follow my words here if you can. Even if you can just follow them logically, then you can bring them into your orientation to sitting. So... What do we do when noise appears? What do we do when, when thoughts arise in our meditation? We create the space for them to arise. We just don't get caught up in their, uh, whatever their words seem to indicate. Whatever the words seem to, whatever the story, whatever, we just, that's not where we focus our energy in completing the story of wherever the words are taking us. It's cold in here. I've got to talk to the janitor about turning up the heat. When can I do that? Well, I can't, won't see him tonight, so I'll write an email. You see, that's what I mean by generating more noise from noise, rather than just feeling the cold. Right? So, now what does that have to do with anything that we've been talking about? Quiet. We can see how the meditation, just from that simple explanation, is moving us towards greater and greater quietude. Now, when we hear words like patience and love and generosity, those seems to those encourage us sort of to rally our forces or something. How is that related to the quietude of the sitting? Well, it so happens that those qualities called the paramis are 
expressions of quiet. Quiet isn't uh, the absence of your thinking. It's being able to be in a different dimension than where your thinking takes you. So that we're not being driven linear in a linear fashion by our thought. We're able to hold the thought as something happening here and now. So when we're quiet, the here and now holds all dimensions of noise within itself. doesn't get fooled by thinking that the noise is taking us into the future or away from the past. Are you following this? Okay. Just get it logically first, and then you can apply it to your, to your sittings. So a funny thing happens. The less noise, the less you are around. We create ourselves from the noise, the self-speak we give ourselves. So the obvious self-speak is the word I, me, and mine. And the more we intone upon that word, the more we form the vision and perceptions around that word. When I say I, suddenly I have a placeholder for my perceptions to look out upon the world in a distant kind of way. So the quieter I become, the less I intoned I am. And funny thing is that that's all of the sense of distance or separation or isolation or the sense of self really is. It's a placeholder on the mind that has been formed by us investing in the words and looking through the words towards the experience of what those words indicate. Okay, so I don't want to get too complex here, but I just wanted to show where this whole thing is going. So funny thing is that the quieter, the more space I offer whatever is arising within the mind, then the more spacious the consciousness feels. The less contracted I am around my opinions, which is noise, my reactions, which is struggle or more noise, my ideas, noise, or even the sense of I, noise. And the more I'm able to see all of that occurring in the here and now, the less those words, including the sense of I, seems to indicate a place other than the here and now. So therefore, within the quiet, the I arises, but it also passes. It doesn't come and form itself into a story and then convince itself that the story is true that creates more words and more adventure into that story. It's simply rests in quiet. It doesn't mean that the eye doesn't come forth. It's just seen in a much greater expanse than we're, when we're identified with that word. Hold on there. I'm going to get... It is going to be simple. So, as I become less predominant within my own experience, within consciousness... It's not something traumatic. It's not like I suddenly forgot my whole history. I don't know who I am. Amnesia, you know, it's not like that. It's simply a quiet mind. And when you're called upon to know who you are and the appropriate thing for you to do and the functional ways that you work, you'll know that. We'll know that. You don't have to worry about you 
throwing yourself in an abnormal state. But as we begin to disappear, just not invested in ourselves so much, which is all of what Buddhism is trying to do, is just divest our interest in ourselves to show that when we do show interest in ourselves, the implications for our own life and others is a selfish approach to living. And selfishness causes pain in ourselves and in others. And therefore, through learning the lessons of selfishness, we come into quietude. We allow ourselves to be released into quiet. Now, that's not the end of the story. But we need to know that the adventure of Buddhism is not about creating a sense and embellishing it with all the ornaments that the sutras seem to indicate. All the sevens of this and the fives of that and the fours of those. It's like a Christmas tree. Very pretty, but not so simple. But when quietude, be, when we allow ourselves to become quiet, suddenly how action arises is not by my own determination, by the sense of eyes determination as to what's needed. It arises out of the moment rather than a reflection upon the moment because the I has been released. And so the moment itself brings forth its action. And actions and perceptions from a reality that is not governed by I and you looks very different because it doesn't, it's not based in selfishness. And what it looks like from the outside, although is not necessarily felt from the moment, is loving. It looks like someone who's kind. It looks like someone who's generous. It looks like from the outside, from the participants, from the, from the audience, it looks like all the paramis. Although inside, it just likes, looks like, it doesn't look, it doesn't, it just expresses itself in whatever appropriate. Now what the self likes to do is to claim reference for each of those paramis in terms of something that it can deal with because the moment's too big for it to deal with. So it tries to put, ratchet down the expression of the parami into an emotional tone. And then that's something it can work with, isn't it? So as long as the eye is busy trying to produce a parami, it will look like to the sense of self because the sense of self will have the experience of some aspect of, of an emotion. Like, I feel generous. You know what it feels like to be generous? That's because you know generosity in yourself. But true generosity you don't know in yourself because there's not a self to know it from. So what the self tries to do is to build a product that it can represent as a movement or direction for a spiritual direction or movement for itself. Patience. 
And so that, but once it comes through the self, once that unlimited nature, awareness, stillness comes through the self and is formed into an emotional reaction, it gets very distorted. It's like water, light going through water. It gets refracted. It gets very ugly because it's made into a self-accomplishment. It's made into a competitive field of how generous am I compared to other people? How much am I giving? I'm not giving enough. We'll come up lacking in it because we are never giving enough. It'll hold the future. The whole reference of self holds the future. And I have to be more generous than I am now. I have to keep working on my generosity. You see, it gets very ugly. And love is the same. When love, when the self sits in the way, when the self positions itself so that it is um, the prism of the moment has to come through the self and we hear a parami called love, self, okay, so now I'm going to be loving. I'm going to really make this loving thing work. But our reference for what love is, is an emotion. It's how you're feeling kind of your heart fluttering. And so we don't feel that very often. So it feels like it's something we have to kind of dig out of ourselves somehow. We have to put ourselves in a position, we have to distort ourselves somehow so that we can open up sufficiently to contain this thing called love. And we try practices, and the practices we do aren't meant to eliminate the sense of self or to at least show its transparency. They're meant to become the recipients of more and more love. So as we become or feel or access love, the sense of self gets more gets more grandiose around that emotion and takes claim and reference to it. Oh, look how loving I become. I've become. Let me show you how loving I am. You see? Which is a selfish relationship to love. Which, if we all understand, is paradoxical. You can't have both of those. You can't be selfish and loving. I mean, those are opposite words. So all we can ever do to access any of these paramis is to be quiet. And to see where it is that the self is taking reference in terms of any of them. And to let surrender that need in ourself. Because where the self is taking reference, there is a hole in that sense of self that feels like it needs that parami in order for it to feel complete as a sense of self. So it wants to become loving so that it can respect itself sufficiently. So that... It's not building upon itself just to build upon itself. It's building upon itself because there's a hole of pain in it that feels diminished unless it has love, unless it has generosity, unless it, you see? So this sense of self is going to continue to form unless that hole is plugged, unless we understand that the pain is what constantly moves us in the direction towards more self-acclaim, 
And so a lot of psychological work needs to be done by each one of us in order to even be willing to come into silence, to come into quiet. It's not easy to... Quiet is... There is nothing harder for, for the consciousness to embrace than love. But the beauty of the word is that it draws it towards us. You see, you can make this into a battle of yourself and say, I have to get over my ego. And from that perspective, then you're in constant... Who is it that's fighting what? Because if whenever there's two of you, you're going, we're going the wrong way on this thing. So this sense of self looks at love and gets overwhelmed. This is too big. I can't do this. This is too big. It gets frightened. So in its fear, it tries to manage it on its terms, which, as I mentioned, is it does one of two things. It tries to manage it on its terms as an emotion, or it belittles love. In this culture, we do both, really. Uh, we, we, our, our real investment is in terms of mind, not heart. We, and if the, the heart is seen as kind of maudlin and weak, it's sort of, um, it's just untrustworthy and it's not reliable. But the mind is reliable. The mind feels like something, you know, it produces a result. Show me the result of your love, for God's sake. And if you, you can't just, you know, how are you going to show the result of your awareness? How can you show your result of your love? You can't show what, you can't do that because it's, a, it's an open expression. It's an open, it's an open field. We can show what love did. We can show the painting or the poem or the song. We like that because then we have some product that the love has provided us. We can then prove we have love because we have written a song about love. See, so, but we're not really interested in love. We're interested in the products of love, what love has produced. It's not that the, what love has produced is wrong. It's just not love. But to the mind, that's the only way it knows to go. This, I read something by Joseph Campbell that I'd like to read because it is very um, in line with what I've been saying. He says, all compassion, all caring, all love is irrational. That's the point. Love is irrational. The rational world is stressing the I and thou opposites. The mind is in the world of separateness and angular structures. Love puts the world together in a way that can't be calculated. Compassion, love, these jump mathematics. So you you hear them from different directions, but basically what I have been saying for the time here has been the very same thing. And so when we take this thing on, yes, it's big. It's big. And there's a certain courage that has to come up where, where the resolve needs to be there. And we have to see that a life lived from selfishness from contraction, just isn't 
going to serve us. It isn't going to serve the world. It isn't going to serve the planet. And with the willingness to admit the limitation of the way we have lived comes the resolve of the willingness to seek out a new way. That's resolve. We've talked about that as a parami. And then as that resolve builds in force, it will take us to a, to a, a, a crisis in ourselves, where we no longer are willing to remain contained within our known structures. We're willing to venture out. We're willing to risk that which has contained us. And because uh, the sense of self then uh, it becomes very threatened. Uh, it feels threatened. There's nothing to... There's, there's no uh, real threat, but it feels threatened because it realizes the way it has perceived and contained the world has limited value. And yet the, op- the opposite, or the way it seems to be moving, is too big for it to hold. And so it's in a, it meets a, it meets, it st- stops. It's dead still. It says, well, can I find a way out of this? I'd like to find a way out, which, uh, you know, is a compromise. And, uh, many of us find that compromise by taking ourselves into our spiritual practice and trying to embellish the sense of self through our spiritual practice. Uh, And that works. Sometimes it works for as long as you do your spiritual practice. But if you're really honest with yourself, see, that's where trust and honesty come, sincerity. That's another parami. See how all these paramis are expressions at different times that come forward from the heart. And now we're talking about love. And it's the ninth parami because it's It's both the compelling reason that many of us continue on the spiritual journey at some point. Because we feel that this has got to be about love or what is life about? It becomes our mythological reference. It becomes our myth. I've been reading Joseph Campbell, as you can tell. (laughs) He's really good. And so then we take on the myth of, of coming into love. And, and so we do so, we do so uh, because we're feeling the compelling nature of that word and we feel the limitations of our selfishness and we find ourselves then uh, in, in the um, awkward position of having to release ourselves in order to take the next step. And we're not sure how or what to do. We'd rather work this thing by our mind. It's a nice story uh, by a, a colleague whose mother was dying. And uh, he, before he goes, he figures out his mother's very close to death. He's going to kind of give her uh, a Dharma talk on letting go. You know, or at least, uh, you know, give her some orientation so that she can have an easy death. It's It's a genuine altruistic concern for his mother. So he goes there, his mother is um, near death, and he takes her hand, 
and he starts talking to her about letting go. He said, just let go, mother, just let go. And as he's talking to her from this kind of rational, dharmic way, she, her, the grasp on her hand becomes, in his hand, becomes tighter and tighter. <laughs> because it, it was, it's obvious that he's scaring her. So he says to her, I love you, mother. And she releases the grip and dies. You see, uh, sometimes when we talk about what is needed, it frightens us. We think, I can't do this. This is too hard. Don't do me. I, I can't see that, right? And we, and we like it in bite-side pieces. But the actual release is not scary. Somebody said it was like taking off a tight shoe. You know, when we do metta, for instance, we can do it uh, as a, you know, you're sort of washing the world and yourself with metta, like you're taking a shower, a metta shower. Um, But that's not really entering metta. That's using it as a practice. That's a bite-sized piece. What's it look like when you actually enter it? You see, I had an occasion, I've told this story before, but it fits the talk. So let me, I had an occasion where there was a lot of fear coming up in me. And I was, um, you know, the Buddha used metta or the practice of love for fear as a resolution of fear. And I never quite understood how that worked, but I was willing to try it because nothing else was working for this fear. And then, uh, because I had been practicing for a long period of time, I, I entered metta. So that the metta wasn't something that I was encouraging as a layer of kind of imaginative quality. But when you enter the moment, another word for metta, entering presence, then the fact of that moment is that it's free of danger. You're not wishing it to be free of danger or that you would be have a moment free of danger. The moment is free of danger. The moment is peaceful. The moment is, in essence, ease and well-being. And though the sense of self is not, because where there is fear, the sense of self is, in the moment, the sense of self is not, and therefore fear is not. And that is the resolution of fear. But in order for the sense of self as it ratchets down love and tries to make life workable, it doesn't get away out, it doesn't get completely free of love because it can't, it's impossible for anyone to be free of the present moment 
The present moment is with us all the time, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. I hope everyone realizes that. And therefore, love is with us, whether we want to realize it or not. Mostly, we don't want to realize it. Because to realize it fully means that we, our participation in the moment, our willful participation in the moment, diminishes. So in order to keep ourselves alive and active within the moment, we have to back ourselves away from love. And in order to do that, because love continues, even through our ideas, because it holds all things, we bring love, which is union, with all things, down to a desire and a fear of things. See, that's the expression of love. I want this is as close as the self can get to union. So it pursues life, trying to pull it in from the outside rather than abides within the moment as the moment is where all things are in union. You see? So it pursues life piecemeal. It's like you're on a scavenger hunt (laughs) for the rest of your life. And you've got to fulfill your life by getting all things together and bringing them into your life. So now I want this, and now I want that, and now I want this, and now I want that. And how are you doing? Are you getting more than I am? (laughs) Or you can just stop and fill up and win win it. If If winning it doesn't make any sense at that point, but you see? So the sense of quantifying love, I'm just trying to show us, this can be so simple. It can be much simpler than we're making it. And and it doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid and that there's not going to be concern. But just know the direction. Encourage, incline your meditation in that direction so that you are moving towards quietude. And you're even going to listen to the noise of your mind, the thoughts of your mind from that quiet, so that the quiet becomes the foundation from which all things arise. And then you'll start feeling in the natural progression of things a warmer heart. And then you'll come out and claim reference to how well your practice is doing, and you'll get lost in that for a few days, months, eons. And then you'll be quiet again and you'll come out and your heart will grow even more. And then you'll say, oh, I get it now. When I come out, that diminishes. When I diminish, it comes out. So you get the formula down. And because love is such a compelling force in life, in the world, you're willing to even give up yourself, your idea of yourself. And all of the the mythology from your sense of self is very different than the mythology of the love. Mythology of the sense of self is all the things we've been doing with ourself up until this point. Accumulating in all of that. That has its own mythology. From the, You have to give up that mythology. You have to give up the race. They say that if you, even if you win the rat race... You're still a rat. (laughs) Not sure why I brought that up. (laughs) 
And so when you're when you when you feel the right disposition, when you feel the right alignment of all this and you get it then it becomes very easy. Then you you just start serving life in its proper orientation perspective. And so you, one of the things about love that you notice very quickly is that you can't control it. You're not in control of it. You see, there, this is huge. It's like, whoa, I, well, you know. In fact, you can't control anything that's worthwhile. And so then you have to look at all the reasons and needs that we need to control because we've been trying to control our whole life and make this thing work. But when you understand the formula then you realize that this thing doesn't need your control, that it's working as it's working. And it doesn't need your willful willful violation of the way it works. And so when we sit, we don't struggle. Because that's not dharma. What am I doing, you know? So you give yourself a talking to once in a while. And you say, okay, so it's big, so what? So maybe I'm as big as it. If I just get out of the way, maybe whatever my consciousness can hold it. It certainly can't hold it as I think small, and I'm thinking very small. So if I stop thinking, maybe it can hold all things. Maybe all I have to do is be quiet. And you have the capacity of the universe accessible. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe thinking our way into this is not going to be the way we can do it. And maybe it's not going to be exact and maybe it's not going to be so defined or the edges like Joseph Campbell is talking about. Maybe it's not going to be so mathematical. I had a couple of nursing friends. One was a loving nurse, a beautiful woman, just uh, a great nurse. But uh, she wouldn't get the pills on time and she wasn't the best charter. And uh, she was kind of always in the doghouse with her administrators, although they recognized her value to the patients because all the patients kept writing notes about how much they liked her. And then I, the both of us, my friend and uh, and I, had a, a, a second, a, another nurse friend, who was very proficient and effective. And I mean, she, by at three o'clock, your pill was in your mouth, <laughs> <laughs> and her charting was always complete and tidy. And when she left work, it felt really, you know, like and all the charts met joint commission standards. <laughs> and so my my friend nurse were, and I were talking about this third person, this nurse, this proficient nurse, and she was just saying, God, I just wish I could be more like Nancy. I said, well, you, you can be more like Nancy if you want, but I don't want you in my room if I'm sick. I meant it, too. Thank you, the pill's on time, but there's no, there's nothing there. Because we, we, we don't realize what healing is in this culture. We think it's the pill. 
If it were the pill, my friends, I could give you a pill for all of your sense of completion, for all of our sense of separation. A pill would work. But what it requires is our love. What it requires is something far more intimate and deep within us. It requires calling something out that's ancient, that is, has been lost, that is wondrous, not human made. It's, it's not an obstacle course that I can run and then become free. And the paradox is that it's with us, but we don't know it. And we're afraid to call out something that is the essence of what we are. As if we were asking ourselves to be any different than what we are. And all we have to do is change myths. And so the whole way we structure practice is in accordance with that new dimension we are encouraging. We ask for relaxation, not struggle. Where is there difficulty in that? Well, how should that? Why should that upset you? To be relaxed? To let go? To release? Not to struggle. It's almost un-American. We get it for nothing. That's why we don't charge at events. What are you going to charge for that? You want, here's the advice. Don't do anything. <laughs> I paid for that. See, that's what the Buddha represents. He represents that which pre-exists all of our pain, pre-exists all of our struggle, pre-exists our tightness and stress, pre-exists our selfishness. And he calls it Suchness, Tathagata. He said he was the Tathagata, suchness. Just to, I want to tell another story if I can. When I was in hospice work, I had a mentor, excellent social worker. And one of the things she told me, she said, uh, I want to tell you a story, you know, as she, as she was training me. She said, uh, one of the first patients I had was a man uh, who I went out and uh, to his bedside and he was lived a long time under a hospice program. So it was several months worth of work. And she really had a very strong bonding with this man. And she said she taught him her whole bag of tricks and she was just trying to do anything that could help alleviate his suffering and to, she taught him meditation she taught him guided imagery she taught him relaxation deep relaxation she taught him um, 
every conceivable tool that she knew. And she even went to the library and looked up new tools so that she'd have something. And then he was very close to dying after weeks and weeks of this kind of teaching. And uh, she wanted to know, just for her own edification, what had been the most helpful to him. And so she said, well, of all the things I've taught you, in which he did, he practiced them and they did them together. What was the most helpful? And he looks at her and he says, what was most helpful is that I knew you cared. That was driving the whole thing, you see. That was, that was it for him. That's it for all of us if we realize what's behind this whole movement. So where's our resolve for it? Are you willing to look, out, look at yourself with such exactitude that you realize that the way most of us are living most of the time is not, we cannot endure. Are you willing to face that and admit that fact? That you can't keep raising children with violence. That we can't keep serving the earth through selfish intention. And that we can't hold ourselves with self-scorn. Or just can't work. And are we willing to call forth, incline ourselves towards something much more vast and wondrous? That's the question I leave us with. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? As you sit, how do you sit? How inclusive is your heart? Where do you turn away? What you turn away from, you cannot love. We begin to see the trail of our tears, of our history, historical tears, all the scar tissue this between ourselves and in a full embrace. The lack of forgiveness, the self-disdain. And we think, oh my God, if, if, I, if I'm facing this, this is endless. There's no, nothing I can do here. But what if we were just quiet with that? 
What if we just didn't add any more to that? What if we were just quiet? Where would it go? You see, it wouldn't be there. But we've lived so long under the spell of the myth that it would, that we, we don't trust. That's as simple as just being still. Just be still. And you have no history. We have no trail. There are no more hurdles. So if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to... Good. Yes. Good. So she says that as she was, as she, I was talking, she could feel herself opening up, which means a couple of things. It means that you were able to relax, because that's really the psychic relaxing, and you felt safe enough to relax. And because most of us, uh, when we use the word love, we don't feel trusting of that word, not just because it's so big but also because historically love means pain. It means pain in relationship to experiencing intimacy with someone else and having to open up to that intimacy. But perhaps more acutely, it means the pain of our own tenderness. Because as we begin to open and we feel tender, we get touched, we get affected by life. And... Uh, that's when we say, okay, enough of this. You know, I was willing to come into this thing until it starts hurting. When the rub gets to such that I don't want, that's when I put on the brakes. Okay? Because at some point, too f- f- full aliveness requires full exposure. Full exposure. So all of the nuanced little grimaces and... but. W- most of the pain that we felt when we knew what everyone was thinking about us, and that's why we never opened to that person or became alive, was our own pain of projection. Right? But once that projected pain is uprooted, then it's just the, the pain of the empathetic pain of living. It's seeing the pain of life in full exposure. It's not the projected pain of, of them thinking something about me. Right? That's just psychological stuff. This is heart pain, feeling the sorrow of humankind, just seeing it. Right? And People living within their own contraction is extraordinarily painful to see when you know that they don't have to and you know that they're not going to give up. There's nothing that they need to do. There's no sacrifice necessary in order for them to step out of that. It doesn't require a sacrifice. It requires a release. But the pain that holds us together in contraction is so compelling 
because it's the story of our life. It, and I'm telling you my story. I can't. You don't understand. You know, I this. I had a mother that you just. If you understood, you wouldn't say it's just a story. You would tell me that it was true. Right. So that's what we're up against. So if you want it to be true, you can be true. And you can go as many years. It's not a contest here. First one to the finish line. It's just when you're willing to say, well, this isn't working anymore. And step out of the untruth. Until that time, we will perpetuate what we think is true. It's not, but we'll perpetuate it. So you see, it's nobody's doing this to us. We're doing it to ourselves. And the, when we become quieter, we get more loving. As we become more loving, we pick up more nuanced pain. As we pick up more nuanced pain, and we begin to see more clearly that we're causing that pain, then we're willing to become quieter. And when we become quieter, we become more loving, pick up more nuanced pain, as long as we're not projecting that pain outward and saying, you did it to me, then we say, oh God, Jesus, I don't have any choice here but to be quieter, to be quieter. See how it goes? That's how it works. But you got to get the formula down. You know, you can't scatter yourself into a thousand pieces and expect it all to come back in union. I've got to work this way. Now I've got to work that way. I've got to try this. And now I've got to do that. I've got to run over here and do that. I mean, I did that. I'm doing it. I'm telling you this because I did it. I did thousands. I was all well-meaning. I just didn't have it all together. I did. I wish somebody had told me what I'm saying to you. So, oh God, I don't have to do all that. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm not making fun of it. It just didn't work for me. This was another thing I was doing. And then I. Anyway, I'm just... So. Other questions or comments? Yes. Yes. And, I, and my whole body, just, I can feel in my whole body the, the, the difference. Yes. But it just seems like it's, I'm not ready to let it go. Right. But it just gets getting louder. The contrast yeah. is just getting Right, extreme. right. It's driving you crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she's saying as she gets quieter, she sees the drama that she's doing more and more often and with louder reference. And she's not willing to let it go, which many of us are in that kind of purgatory between two worlds of of quiet, the yearning of quiet. And and uh, I, I know that's a very important place to be. That's what finishes up. The pain of it finishes up. First of all, you hear it quicker and more subtly. And so the dramas that would have been just normal, everyday experiences become... Uh, things that are, you know, so, you know, it's like the tuba playing. And so you begin to, you notice them much more quickly. And uh, then, uh, uh, it's, it's hard because people keep leaving here, you know. I just keep losing 
my thought train and the sense of the container of the space as people leave. Please, when you come, stay the whole time. I, I'm talking to the choir, I realize that. but It's very hard up here to... Anyway, uh, as we uh, get quieter and we start seeing that pain and we're not willing to give it up, we find ourselves in that uh, excruciating position of feeding the noise and yearning for stillness. And it, it seems like we're not sure that this is ever going to resolve itself. Uh, and so, but it, with, with your willingness, just through your willingness to persevere and keeping your eyes open, neither side of the issue discounting. If the quiet can sometimes seem boring and to look at that, and the drama can sometimes seem exciting to look at that, to see what it is that seems to pull, why, what is pulled out of us in the drama and what is, what is being, um, blunted in the silence. You know, what do we, and you get a clear idea of where it is and what it is that we have been wanting from life through those, through playing off both ends, so to speak. I can just give you one assurance that if you keep it with eyes, with you, if you keep eyes open through it all, you will, and you won't know this, but this is what will happen. You will slowly, but inevitably, move to greater quiet and be willing to release the drama, the need for drama. Drama may still happen, but the need for drama. That's, that's the one assurance that the Buddha has given us. That this, it's a single track. Seems like there's a two-way road here, but it's only a single road. And so most of us just need the willingness to keep the observation, to keep the awareness of what it is we're getting, the limitation. You know, it feels very upsetting, and, but this is, this is what the experiencing of awake Wakefulness feels like. This is how wakefulness occurs. Exactly what all of you are going through. All of us are going through. That's the way wakefulness opens to itself. We can make it, we can do it quickly by keeping our eyes open. Or we can drag it out by denying and procrastinating and etc. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.